Good morning, everybody. You can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bibles that we have there provided for you, uh, it's on page 841. 841. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Boy, what a great time it has been this morning as it is just about every Sunday here, worshiping with God's people, singing songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord, and praying for each other. I mean, what, what, a, what a biblical thing to do, to lift each other up in prayer. And uh, now we have the opportunity of hearing God's voice. And it's not my voice. Um, it is the voice of, of God as it's revealed in the pages of the scriptures. And so every time we, we open the scriptures, it's, it's actually God speaking to us. He has spoken to us in his son, and he does speak to us uh, through the scriptures. And, and so let's pray and let's ask for God's help to uh, understand what he wants us to know today. He wants to give us a spirit of revelation and, and knowledge, and let's ask him for that. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity, for the musicians that you've gifted, for the pastors and elders that uh, you've placed over us, Father, to help lead us in following Jesus Christ. And, and now, Father, we have no higher authority that we submit to than the Word of Christ, uh, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law today. Help us to see them. We, we believe that you're not a stingy God withholding knowledge from us, but you want to reveal knowledge to us. And so uh, we're asking for your help and understanding, Father. And so uh, as diligent uh, students of the Word of God, Father, we're going to open the text, and we trust that you'll be right along with us, uh, helping us to understand these things. And so we call upon you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in a series. This is the second week of a uh, sermon series called Our Generous God and His Generous People. Our Generous God, His Generous People. And that word order is very, very important. We must first understand, in order to be a generous people, that we're not doing and being generous uh, based upon our own goodness. But our generosity is grounded in and rooted in and founded in the generosity of God. And our executive pastor, Larry Howard, last week, helped us to consider and contemplate the generosity of God from First Chronicles 29. And we saw that David and the people of Israel were bringing all of their resources together to give a great offering to God for the building of the temple. And they had a whole, David had a whole prayer that was just thanking God and in awe for all that God had given to them. You see, even the very stuff that we give back to Him, the offering that you just gave is really just giving back to Him what He's already given to you. God owns everything, and He has been so generous to us, and it uh, makes us stand in awe that we could give anything back to Him and to His work. And so uh, He laid the foundation for us, Pastor Larry did, uh, from First Chronicles chapter uh, 29. And today we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And before we move into the next phase in this series on the generosity of God and His generous people, we must first understand what is the obstacles to us being generous. And so today's sermon is called The Deadly Danger of Riches. The Deadly Danger of Riches. Now, we've got a great tool for you to use. Uh, how many of you have been reading this book so far? A few of you? Yeah? Okay, we'd like every single one of these hands to be raised next week. And we've got a whole collection of these booklets. It's called A 40-Day Journey, uh, to a uh, Spiritual Journey to a More Generous Life. 
And there are great daily devotions right here that you can read along with us. Uh, we'll be starting the second week this week. So even if you didn't have it last week, you can get caught up, start reading this week. Uh, and it's a great resource for us to examine our own hearts, to see the generosity of God, to examine our own hearts for greed, and then to think about what does God want me to, be, uh, want me to do to be generous in this life. And so we want you to get a copy of that. It's free of charge because we want all of us to have access to His Word and access to good resources that help us uh, live a more generous life. So on your way out, if you don't have this, on your way out, get a copy from one of our ushers or from the Welcome uh, uh, Center out there, and they will make sure that you can get your very own copy. Now, not only that, but our small groups are talking about the exact same topic so that we can hear God's Word on Sunday, we can meet in our small groups throughout the week, and we can actually apply God's Word to our lives. So... Be sure to get a copy of that. It's by Brian Kluth, A 40-Day Spiritual Journey to a More Generous Life. But before we get into the sermon this morning and get into the text, I just have a question for you. Do you have a pet? How many of you have, have pets out there? Pets. Now, who are the dog people? Dog people? All right. Who are the cat people? I'm going to put my hand down. I'm not a cat person. Uh, no way. No. Cats, uh, I have, I'm allergic to cats, and they frankly don't like me very much. Uh, I, I really don't think cats really like anybody too much, uh, to tell you the truth. Uh, so I'm more of a dog person. I don't, like, intentionally try to do any harm to cats. It's just, it's just not my thing, all right? So, uh, so that's great. So uh, dog people, cat people, uh, how about fish people or aquarium people? You have fish. Yeah, there's a fish owner right there, fish. But how about, how about lizards or snakes? Oh, okay, lizards, snakes. All right, there we go. We're getting a little bit adventurous here. All right, great. Well, let me ask you this. What about a lion? Any lion people out there? You're lying if you are. Ah. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, lion people. H have you ever considered what it would take to tame a lion? To tame a lion? You have now, right? Uh, in the Chicago Tribune, October 2005, it writes of a man, an Illinois resident named Al Abel, or Abel, Abel, he kept a brood of exotic animals in a small zoo he called Cougar Bluff Enterprise, including a nearly 400-pound African lion called Simba. Of course, right? Uh, Abel was usually careful in the handling of these exotic pets, but one afternoon, he made a fatal mistake. He forgot to lock the door to the secondary pen that he put the lion in when cleaning its cage. The details surrounding Abel's death are uncertain, but Abel's wife returned to the property to find him missing, the lion roaming free, and the other animals on the farm agitated. What followed was a tense standoff between local police and the lion, which ended with Simba shot dead by assault rifles. Abel's bed was found near the animal cage, having bled to death from a massive bite in his leg. Now, I I'm not here to talk about the pros and cons of trying to domesticate a lion as a pet. But what I am saying is this. I think that you would agree with me that if we had such a beast, such a predator in our homes or in our possession, we would take very, very, uh, a lot of care uh, in how we handled this predator, how we handled this intense beast, right, this lion. And so what I want to talk about this morning is the deadly danger of riches. And, and I think that there's a, a great similarity, and we're going to see it from, from the Apostle Paul as he writes to Timothy. And he's not talking about a literal lion here, obviously. In fact, he doesn't mention a lion at all in this text. But I, I think if, if we could paraphrase Paul, we could say, 
He's telling Timothy, you need to watch out for that deadly lion of wealth that wants to eat you alive. The deadly danger of riches. Now, 1 Timothy, it's a letter. It's a letter to a young pastor whom, whom Paul left in Ephesus to lead the churches in that city. Ephesus was a leading city in pagan idolatry. And Acts 19, if you want to read about it later, it describes a situation in which many people, many people of the city were opposed to the spread of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus Christ. But, but as the church spread, and as churches started to be planted around Ephesus, subtler and more sinister threats arose in the form of false teachers who were seeking to set up their own groups of followers and to detract people from the faith that they were taught at the beginning by Paul and Timothy and other apostles. Paul writes to Timothy then in this, in this book to warn him of these false teachers. You see that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He, he, he tells them, I want you to warn and command the people to stop spreading false doctrine and instead, I want you to hold on to the faith and the practice that is in, in, in line with sound doctrine, with the doctrine according to Jesus Christ. One of the major threats of these false teachers was their motivation rooted in a lust for riches. Not only did this greed and materialism fuel the false teachers, it was also an enticement to their audience, to those who listened, since it resonated with their own sinful desires. Timothy is ministering in Ephesus, and there's false teachers all around that are being raised up. And Paul writes, he says, I want you to go out and I want you to rebuke these false teachers, and I want you to tell everybody that's listening to them to go back and remember and hold on to the faith that was passed on to you from the very beginning. And I want you to live in accordance with that sound doctrine that we taught you. Don't give in. Don't let that lion loose in your midst. You see, false teachers can always attract a crowd. You know, we, sometimes we look at these mega churches or these big fancy preachers, some of them even on TV, and we wonder to ourselves, they've got to be good, right? Look at the following they have. Oh, it doesn't take much to attract a following. False doctrine, false theology, a false message is, is certainly enough to attract a crowd as long as it appeals to the ears of the listeners. And Paul is warning Timothy, flee from these false teachers, rebuke them, and tell the people to keep holding fast to the doctrine and the sound teaching that they first heard. Paul's final instruction in this letter, in chapter 6, it's centered upon commanding Timothy to tame the lion of wealth, not only for himself, but also for those to whom he was ministering. You can almost hear the message this way. Pay careful attention to your attitude about money. Or just like a hungry lion, Timothy, it will eat you alive. Tame the lion. Tame the lion of wealth and riches. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But before we dig into the text, let's just lay some groundwork. Let me ask the question. Is there anything intrinsically or inherently evil about money, about wealth, about riches. Is there anything intrinsically evil about money? Think about that for a moment. Well, I think the Bible's clear that the answer is no. There's nothing intrinsically evil about money. See, just like water, it has both good purposes and, and evil purposes. 
You see, uh, we, we love water, especially this time of year. The rains come and it makes our hillsides green and it's beautiful and it brings the fire threat down. That's a wonderful use for water. It, it helps us grow crops. It puts out fires. It quenches our thirst. My personal favorite use of water is to use it to brew a hot cup of dark coffee, right? Love it. You probably love it too for tea and whatnot. So we love water. You know, on a hot day, there's nothing better than having a friend invite you over that may own a swimming pool and say, hey, you want to come take a dip and cool off? And I love, I love that moment when you're just airborne and you know it's coming soon and then you get down in there and the water just feels so cool and wonderful all around you. Wonderful uses for water. But also water has evil purposes. It, 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 it brings floods. It brings destruction. People drown and die and it destroys property and possessions and crops. And so water can, while it can have a wonderful use on one side, it also can have an evil purpose. But water in and of itself intrinsically is not bad. And so I would say to you that just like water, money is very similar. It's intrinsically, it's, it's neither evil nor good. It's just a thing. But really, the point is not what we, whether or not we have money, but how do we feel about money. And so I've got the most expensive illustration that I have ever had for a sermon before. I want to introduce you out of my pocket to my friend Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, that's, that's a $100 bill. Some of you are like, that's no big deal. Some of you are like, yeah, ooh, that's good, right? So if I was still teaching kids, which I, I used to be the kids director, you know, I'd bring out like a $5 bill, $10 bill. Ooh, Mr. Matt, that's really cool, right? But I'm not with kids. I'm with people that, you know, that have jobs mostly and stuff. And so uh, I've got a $100 bill right here. And so you may have certain feelings about this. I certainly have certain feelings about this $100 bill. I almost left it on the stage in the first service, and I thought I probably should get that, right? <laughs> so I've got a $100 bill, and, and, and I, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put it here in this little uh, stand-up here so that it could be a, a constant reminder to us uh, as we study God's Word together. And in a few moments, we'll just consider how do we feel about this? How do we feel about this? Now, this, this $100 bill is neither good nor bad. It could be used for good purposes or, or bad purposes. There's nothing intrinsically evil or good about this. But what it does do is it reveals something about our hearts. You see, what, what's not evil is the material. There's nothing evil about the paper and the ink. But what is evil is materialism materialism. And I, and I would commend to you a book. I'm going to just read a, a short passage from this book. It's called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's by Randy Alcorn. I talked with uh, Michael Grossenheider, our, our bookstore uh, manager, and he actually has it right up. The link is right up. If there's a computer outside, you could check it out and you can get it for yourself. But Randy Alcorn is maybe the best writer, I think, on, uh, on a, having a view of, of money. And so this book is fantastic. And he writes about materialism. He says this, Materialism begins with our beliefs, not merely what we say we believe, not our doctrinal statement, but the philosophy of life by which we actually live. Not just what you think and say, but what you do. So even though true Christians would deny belief in the philosophical underpinnings of materialism, right, they may nonetheless be preoccupied with material things. Materialism is first and foremost a matter of the heart. God created us to love people and use things. But materialists love things and use people. What a distinction there. So as we examine this, it, we have to first understand that there's nothing evil about this. But in our hearts, we may have the roots of material and greed in our hearts that think so much about this that we're willing to do anything for it. How you feel about money, 
How you feel about it is a matter of the heart. What we think about and feel about money is an indicator of who and or what we worship. In our book, Daily, uh, our Daily Journey uh, Together uh, by uh, Brian Kluth, page 12, the first week, one of the entries here, it says, the Lord watches over your giving. And I love what it says down here at the bottom. The principle is this, your bank and credit card statements are theological documents. Theological documents. They reveal to you and others what you believe and how you feel about God. They tell who and what you worship. What would the theological documents of your life, your, your bank cards, your, your statements, what would they reveal about who and what you worship? It's a heart attitude. How do you feel about this, this thing that's here that's neither good nor evil? It reveals our hearts. Let's take a look at the text. Enough for introduction. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 3 through 11. And then we're going to read verses 17 to 19. Follow along as I read aloud. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. And that's the things related to the pure gospel and sound doctrine. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and, to, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Go down to verse 17 with me. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, beware. You better tame that lion of wealth in your life. How you feel about it, what you think about it, you've got to tame the lion, or it will destroy you. And he gives at least four heart attitudes. Four heart attitudes that will either make us or break us. Four heart attitudes to help us tame the lion of our perspective about money and about wealth. The first heart attitude is this. Be content with what you have. Heart attitude number one, be content with what you have. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 7 again says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. 
But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And the, and the word there, content, uh, the Greek word there is really sufficiency. It means I have enough. It means that the state of being uh, that you have right now, that you're content with that. You are content with your lot in life. Really, it's just saying, I have enough. I have enough. We sang it this morning, one of the, the great bridge of one of the songs is Christ, uh, the melody, uh, 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 is, is Christ is enough for me, the chorus. Christ is enough for me. And, and I have to tell you, if you're like me, I sing it, but I sing it with my knees knocking because I realize that there are many moments of my day sometimes that, that, I, that I don't really feel that way. But right here, right now, Lord, I'm telling you, I want to feel this way deep down into my bones that Christ is enough for me, that I am content. Now, content, that's, that's not a word we hear too often. I'm content. I'm good. I have enough. I'm fine. I'm happy with the state that I'm currently in. Especially if you have kids, you don't hear that too often, right? <laughs> my kids, I don't know how many times a day or how many times a week I hear, oh, I'm starving, so hungry. Dad, where are we going to go with some lunch? Well, we'll go home in about a half an hour. Oh, but I need something now. Can you stop and get me something now? Right? Right? You feel that? Everybody, anybody ha heard that before, right? Yeah, contentment. It's not too common for our kids, and it's probably not too common for us either. Contentment. The state of being content with one's circumstances or lot in life. It's saying, I have enough. Well, Paul is writing, and he's saying this, this attitude of contentment, of thinking that you, that you have enough, and it's not just a thought, it's actually realizing that you have enough. It's actually a sane or logical way of thinking. Look at verse 7 again. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. We brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of it. Now, I love this saying. I don't know who came up with it, but it's brilliant. It says this, You'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Now, I know it's a weird thought, but every single one of you came out of your mother's womb naked. You weren't clothed. You didn't have a bank account, a savings account, and a 401k. You came out with absolutely nothing. And the truth of the matter, what we know is this. Just like you came out of this world with nothing, everything that you've accumulated since will not go with you. Naked you came into this world, and naked you'll go. You'll go out with nothing. Randy Alcorn writes uh, in, in his book here about uh, John Rockefeller. It says, when one of the wealthiest men in history, John D. Rockefeller, died, his accountant was asked, how much did John leave? The accountant's reply was classic. He left all of it. <laughs> one of the wealthiest men that ever lived, and he didn't go to the grave with a single dime, a single penny, a single nickel. You leave all of it. You came into this world with nothing, and you take nothing out. Job 1.21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Now, friends, this is right after this man had lost everything. He was one of the most wealthiest men of his time. He had homes. He had flocks. He had herds. He had children. He had wealth, riches. He had honor. And Satan asked God permission, and Satan came down and took it all away from him because he said, Satan said, oh, it's easy for Job to praise you, but let me take away everything that he has, and he'll curse you. 
And after it was all taken away, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will be depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. A heart of contentment, even through, I'd imagine, the tears, the weeping, the sorrow, the agony. He says, Praise be to the Lord. Psalm 49, verses 16 to 19 say this, Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increase, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who've gone before them who will never again see the light of life. How much bragging, how much boasting is done by the rich of this age. Look what I've got. Look how impressive it is. Don't be overawed with it. They can't take it with them when they go to the grave. It's only logical to be content with what you have. Ecclesiastes 5.15 Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as as everyone comes so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Nothing. All the toil. All the labor. It's good to feed your family. It's good to provide for your needs. It's good to be blessed by the Lord with material possessions. But friends, you will not take it with you. So the only sane thing to do is be content with what you have. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Paul is, is in prison and he's saying, hey, look, I've gone through so many different circumstances. What's my perspective when everything that I've had is taken away? And, and it comes here in, in one of the most quoted verses that you hear today. But Philippians 4, 11 says, I've learned to be content with whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That verse is in a verse about saying I, I can accomplish anything I want. It means that I can be content with what I currently have, no matter the circumstance, because I know that no matter what people do to me, they could throw me in prison, they could kill me, they could take away all my possessions. I still have Jesus, and therefore I am content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is that your testimony today? Maybe you're going through something. Maybe something dear and precious to you has been taken away. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've lost your family. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. If you have Christ, friend. If you don't have Christ today, we want you to know the person that could give you more contentment and more satisfaction than this world could ever offer. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Why can I do that? Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. No matter what you go through, no matter what's taken away, God will never leave you. And because of that, we can flee from a love of money and we can be content with what we have. Do you want more? Is this drawing you? Is it calling you? I have to have it? Can you be content with what you have and who you have, more importantly? Are you content? 
And the, is the presence of Jesus enough for you? Heart attitude number one to tame the line of wealth and riches is to be content with what you have. Heart attitude number two. Heart attitude number two is this. Flee from greed. Flee from greed. I'll say it one more time. Flee from greed. And I, I wish I had a mirror right here in front of me so that I could tell myself this. Flee from greed. Listen to the scriptures. Chapter 6, 1 Timothy, verses 9 through 11, our text says, Those who want to get rich, a desire to be wealthy, they fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do you see the progression there? It's a trap. It's a desire. It's something that the enemy is setting for you to know. If you take the bait, ha ha, I've got you. A trap. A trap. And they plunge into many, many harmful desires and in ruin and into destruction. Why? Why is that the case? Why is that the case? Why is it so wrong to want to be wealthy? Here's why. Verse 10, because or for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we have it written one way here in the English text because we always write things that way. That's how our English speaking minds think. We put the subject and then predicate and so on. But the way it reads in Greek for emphasis is that a root of all kinds of evil is a love of money. The emphasis there is that Paul is trying to help us understand that there's a whole world of evil out there and its root comes all the way down to a love of money. So many times we can see it in, in the celebrities and the wealthy of our age. Their lives are a mess. They're in turmoil, drug addictions, broken families, broken lives. And many times it goes back all the way to find its root into this love of money. This love of money. It says those, uh, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Verse 10 goes on. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. My goodness, this goes, this goes beyond just talking about them out there in the world. And now Paul is talking about us who sit in churches. Those of us who are a part of this spiritual community. There are some of you today some of you today that are feeling, and maybe it's me, we are feeling the temptation that we will wander away from Jesus Christ, wander away from the faith because we are in love with this. It sounds silly. It sounds ridiculous. But it's the truth. Some of you, some of us here today are being tempted by a love of money and you're ready to shipwreck your faith. You're ready to wander away from the faith and it goes on to say, you wander away from the faith and you pierce yourself with many griefs. Pierce yourself with many griefs. What we think and, and how we feel about money is an indicator of who or what we worship. Remember, your, your, your bank statements, your credit card statements, they're theological documents. They're an indicator of who you worship. And what, what does it mean? What, what, do you, what do we call it when we worship anyone or anything other than God? What's that called? Idolatry. Not adultery, although that's very closely related, but it's 
idolatry. We're cheating on the one who saved us, the one who loved us, the one who gave his son for us every time we bow down to material things, every time we bow down to something other than God. It's called idolatry, idol worship. We don't need a statue. We don't need a little thing here to sit down and worship or some totem pole. It could be something as simple as this. Idolatry. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6 says, For of this you can be sure. Again, this is Paul writing. No immoral, impure, or greedy person. Then he says, Such a person is an idol worshiper. These people don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. They're shut out. If you don't want to worship the one true God, then you don't want to be in his kingdom because in his kingdom, all we're going to be doing is worshiping the creator. If you want to worship something else, the kingdom is not for you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Paul's saying, don't think that it's just okay to dabble in a little bit of money worship. Don't be deceived with empty words. For because of such things, because of greed, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Did you hear that? A little bit of greed is worthy of the wrath of God. Colossians 3, 5. Paul writes again, put to death. Because God's wrath's coming because of this, kill it! Put it to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Pierce yourself. You pierce yourself with many griefs. You're willing to be an object of the wrath of God when we go and when we worship anything other than Him. Very quickly, turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. It's a story here of a man who was victim of this very thing. A love of money, he wandered from the faith and pierced himself with many griefs. Joshua chapter 7. Very quickly to set the stage for you. The people of Israel are finally entering the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua is now their leader. And as they cross into the promised land, God says, all right, the first battleground you're going to go to is the city of Jericho. And now it's important here. Jericho is a mighty city, and I'm going to win this victory for you. And when you go in there, I want you to destroy everything. I don't want you to keep anything for yourself. I got all kinds of wealth and riches and prosperity for you in the promised land, but not in Jericho. Jericho is mine. You're going to destroy everything. And so they go in there, they win the victory. You know they blow the trumpets, the walls come down, and they go and they take the city, and, and they destroy everything, supposedly. We come into Joshua, chapter 7, and Joshua's weeping because now after Jericho, after Jericho, now they say, let's go take the next city. Let's go take Ai. And Ai is just this puny little city compared to Jericho. And guess what? Ai, the people there, they just whip them. They beat them up big time. And now Joshua is like, Lord, what's happening? Are you going to take away your promises to us? And, and, and this is what the Lord says. John, uh, Joshua chapter 7, verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They've put them with their own possessions. 
That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their back and run because they've, not, they've been made, more li made liable to destruction. And I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Get rid of it. Get rid of the greed out of the camp. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. Let's move on. Verse 16 says, Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and, and Judah was chosen. The clan of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites. And we come all the way down to this family in verse 18. Finally, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen by Lot. And they found out who it was. Then Joshua said to Achan, verse 19, My son, give glory to the Lord the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in, in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. I desired them. I wanted the riches. And I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. That's just a little bit of stuff, you guys. Just a little bit of stuff. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua together with all Israel took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Accor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains there to this day. Then the Lord turned from his anger. This is a man that in the midst of of all that God wanted him to do, just had a little desire, and he acted upon that desire. He didn't kill that desire, and it brought him destruction. It brought him many pains. He wandered from the faith, according to 1 Tim, uh, Timothy 6, and he pierced himself with many griefs. That's why Paul tells Timothy, but you, man of God, in verse 11, 1 Timothy 6, you, man of God, Flee from all this. Flee from a love of money. I've got several stories here. I, I don't have time to read hardly any of them, but I've got one article here. It's from Time Magazine, January 2016. And the title of this article is, Here's How Winning the Lottery Makes You Miserable. And I've got story after story, anecdotes of how people that just loved money, that wanted to live the high life, and that money came, and that love of money for them became a root of all kinds of evil. I'll share one with you. Here's the story of Jack Whitaker, and uh, he says here, Jack Whitaker was already a millionaire when he won a $315 million in a lottery in West Virginia in 2002. The then 55-year-old West Virginia construction company president claimed he went broke about four years later and lost a daughter and a granddaughter to drug overdoses. 
which he blamed on the curse of the Powerball win, according to ABC News. My granddaughter is dead because of the money, he told ABC. You know, my wife had said she wished that we had, she had just torn up that ticket. Well, I wish we had torn the ticket up too. Whitaker was also robbed of $545,000 sitting in his car while he was at a club eight months after winning the lottery. I just don't like Jack Whitaker. I don't like the hard heart I've got. He's speaking of himself. He's saying, I don't like the person that I've become. I don't like it. Here's the, he's the last person, this is somebody else, he's the last person I would have prototyped for going completely crazy, but he did. No question, it was because he won the lottery. A love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of evil. And those who have money love, those who want to get rich, they end up wandering from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. Therefore, heart attitude number two to, to tame this lion, to tame this beast, flee from greed. Be content with what you have. Flee from greed. Do you recognize the greed in your heart? Be careful to not let this lion destroy you, friend. Do you recognize it? You and I may have become numb to it. Don't allow the advertising, the commercials, the comparisons, the dream, the American dream, friends, to lull you to sleep. The American dream could do so much good in giving people an incentive to provide for their own needs and the needs of their family, but it also can feed the hungry line of greed within our hearts. More, more, more. It may seem weird to the world, but you're called to put greed to death. Our dream is a gospel dream, friends. It's not an American dream. We must flee from the love of money. Are you fleeing? Are you fleeing the love of money? Are you taming this lion? Heart attitude number one, be content with what you have. Heart attitude number two, flee from greed. Heart attitude number three is this. Put your hope in God and not in your possessions. Look again at verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 17. Uh, it says, command those who are rich in this present world. Look, look at that there. Command those who are rich in in this present world. He's saying just because you have riches now doesn't mean that you're really rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Some of you here today, praise be to God, you, you've got wealth, you've got riches. Please don't think that that means that you're an evil person intrinsically. That just means that you've got a line you need to tame. But it says here, command those who are rich in this world. And for us who live in America, that means almost every single one of us, according to 90% of the world standards, we are very, very wealthy people. If there's anybody that this should be preaching to, it's to you and to me, those of us that live in a wealthy society. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Don't ever boast about your possessions. Don't boast about what you've got. Nor to put your hope in wealth, thinking, oh man, I could sleep so well tonight. I, I know that my 401k is just rocking. Uh, I got the bills paid. I'm feeling so good. Don't put your hope in wealth. Why? Because it's so uncertain. But put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. How many of you know that wealth is so uncertain? Proverbs 23, 4-5 says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. 
cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. You ever experienced that? A windfall, and all of a sudden you blink, and it's gone. It's flown off like an eagle. Wealth here and now means nothing for eternity. Let me say it again. Wealth here and now means nothing for eternity. Now, Pastor Phil's going to share with us how we can use wealth as a tool to impact eternity and make riches for ourselves into eternity. But when God looks down, I am so thankful he does not look down and say, uh, where are the wealthy ones? I, I'm going to let them into my kingdom. And the rest of you poor folk, you can stay home. No, no, no. No. In fact, in, uh, in, in wealth here and now means nothing. In fact, the principle of reversal is often true. Those who are poor in this life are promised eternal riches when they put their hope in God, while those who are rich in this life, who put their hope in riches, will be poor into eternity. There's going to be a lot of poor people that are going to be in heaven and many wealthy people that are going to be left out. That should make you shudder. Mark 10, 23 to 25, Jesus looked around at his disciples. He said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone rich to enter the kingdom of God. Put your hope in riches doesn't give you any, any more eternal status than anything else. I'd encourage you, when you go home later with your family or with a spouse or, or on your own, take a look at the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke 12, 13. Go home and take a look at that. Read that for yourself. This rich man had stored up storehouses full of grain. He thought he was going to be doing great, big, build big barns, and overnight it was all taken away from him. So what's, what's the alternative? If we don't put a hope in riches, what do we do? And Paul says, and says, put your hope in God. Tell these people, don't be arrogant about your riches. Don't put your hope in riches, but put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Everything that we need in this life and in the next, God wants to give it to you. But don't put your hope in riches. In whom or in what have you put your hope today? The power of the gospel, friends. The power of the gospel sets us free so that we don't have to be eaten by this lion. It sets us free so that the rug doesn't have to be swept out from underneath us. When we put our hope in riches, it could all be gone. It could fly away like an eagle. But Jesus and the gospel gives us something that is sure, something that we can be confident in, something that gives us hope. It gives us hope. The power of the gospel not only saves us, by forgiving us our sins, it gives us new hope. Are you living according to that hope today? Do you have that hope today? Are you sitting here today and thinking, I came here for something, I don't know what it is, but I don't have that hope. We want you to know that hope today. Jesus wants to give it to you. Are you living according to that hope, or are you still counting on the uncertain riches of this world to hold you up? Four attitudes, four attitudes. The first one is be content with what you have to tame this lion. Flee from greed. Put your hope in God, not in your possessions. And fourthly, heart attitude number four to tame this line of wealth is be radically generous. Be radically generous. I'll read verses 18 and 19 of 1 Timothy 6 one more time. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm 
firm, not flying away, but a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be radically generous. And sometimes those adverbs wear me out, but I'm telling you, be radically generous. Be willing to share. Be rich. Be known as a rich person in good works. Man, that person over there, they got a wealth of good works. They are doing good all the time. Be lavish with your possessions. Grand, abundant, overflowing, giving. This is true wealth, friends, and this is true life. Be radical. Be audacious. Be bold. Be fearless. Be brave and daring in your generosity toward God, toward each other, and toward those in need. Let me ask you, what have you got to lose? Naked you came into this world, and naked you're going to go. So it only makes sense to, to invest in another world. And Pastor Phil's going to cover that next week. I don't, I don't want to steal his thunder. He'll get mad at me. <laughs> but hard attitude number four to tame this line is be radically, radically, audaciously generous with what you have. You're laying a foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. The lion won't devour you, and you'll have life abundantly. Do you have an eternal perspective about your possessions? Are you only thinking about the here and now? You can have two, two perspectives about this lion here, about this, this Benjamin here. Either it could serve your purposes here and now, and it could be gone in a moment, and a love of this could cause you great heartache and pain. Or you could be radically generous with this and give it away and see it do things that you never thought possible. Do you have an eternal perspective about your possessions? Are you living foolishly for the here and now, which is quickly, quickly fading away, or for eternity? Four heart attitudes to tame the lion of wealth and riches, the deadly danger of riches. Heart attitude number one, be content with what you have. Heart attitude number two, flee from greed. Heart attitude number three, don't put your hope in possessions. Put your hope in God. And heart attitude number four, be radically generous. And this lion will not devour you, but it will be used for God's glory and for his kingdom, for a firm foundation in the future. Father, we've got a lion. Most of us here are, are wealthy Americans compared to the rest of the world, Father. This is so appropriate for us. Oh, Father, I pray that you teach us as a people and individually to flee from greed to not fall in love with money. Teach us, teach us to be content with what we have. Teach us to put our hope in you and not in our fleeting riches. And oh, Father, I pray that our world, our neighbors, our friends, our missionaries, those who are in our lives, this church, that we would abound with resources because you have taught us to be a radically generous people. Teach us to be generous. Save us from this, this lion that wants to devour us, Father. We trust in you today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.